it's not enough to just practice your serve in an empty gym and then pat yourself on the back because you're doing the work where nobody's watching. Right. Cool. That's like some self-esteem boosting, but that's not going to make you a better server. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'm joined on the line today by Austin Einhorn. Over the last 12 years, Austin has used critical thinking skills to solve the problems of professional athletes and Olympians. He's a champion of problem solving, emphasizing a teaching mindset through effective communication, authentic relationships, and practical hands-on coaching. And in this wide-ranging interview, we touch on a ton of different topics such as how to improve skill development in young athletes, why we're seeing so many non-contact injuries in sport, the role and value that language plays in coaching, how to help our athletes take better care of themselves, and why he's so focused on improving continuing education as a whole. Austin is definitely a thinker, and while there are moments where we're both a bit cerebral in this show, I guarantee it's going to make you think. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome new episode with Austin Einhorn. Have you heard about the new IFAST University? When Bill Hartman and I created IFAST U in 2016, we had one primary goal, to make IFAST University an elite resource for trainers, coaches, and rehab professionals across the globe. Continuing education is something that we've always taken great pride in here at IFAST, and we wanted to create an extension of that with IFAST U. Because here's the thing, there are tons of great trainers and coaches out there who legitimately want to learn from us and get better, but don't have the ability to come to iFast and do it in person. So whether you're a young, up-and-coming coach who's just getting started, or a seasoned vet of the training game, if you want to get better each and every month, I'm sure we have an option for you. We now have two membership options at iFastU based on your needs and goals, Standard and Elite. Our Standard option is like the Netflix of training Con Ed. Here, you'll have access to the complete iFastU archive, which has well over 100 in-depth videos on topics like program design, coaching, and anatomy and movement. Plus, every month you'll get a new piece of content from a world-class coach, someone that's going to help you take your game to the next level. But if you're really looking to fast-track your progress, you may want to get in on iFastU Elite. Here, you'll not only have access to the archives and monthly content drops like standard users, but you also have direct access to both Bill and I each and every month. Between two monthly Q&A calls, access to over 100 previously recorded Q&A calls, and direct access to both of us and our elite group of trainers and coaches via our private forum, this is a surefire way to get around the right people and level up fast. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to ifastuniversity.com. Again, that's ifastuniversity.com. We hope to see you in the U soon. Austin, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Looking back at my life, I feel like I was destined for this career, although I was clueless for the longest time. And I say that just because... I've been interested in watching movement since I was a kid. Yeah. Like I remember playing soccer, watching, watching other kids run. And one kid, I remember this one in particular, he ran with his toes turned inward. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen that before, but he was blistering fast. And I was just very <laughs> curious, does that make him faster or slower? And I had other competing interests, but then once my volleyball career ended, I was just I determined to stay within a realm of movement. I, I cannot sit behind a desk for all day. 40 hours uh, a week. Yeah. And I, someone graciously was like, why don't you get into strength and conditioning? And I was like, that's a career. Like I thought I had to do something <laughs> with like I, all my friends were going to graduate school. So I just figured like, nobody, nobody starts their career out of undergrad. That's silly. But I was, I admit, I, I think I got pretty lucky. I was, at the right PT clinic as an aide learning DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, when it was like first emerging 12 to 13 years ago, yep. at least in the, in the States. And then I got my first pro athlete like a few months after I got my CSCS. And once I realized I could help him, I was just like, just how much, how deep can I go down this rabbit hole of, 
helping people be more effective than they have been in the past. It was extremely rewarding that this NFL veteran is getting results that he had not gotten previously from little old me. And I didn't know anything back then. I would not have done (laughs) anything the same, but it was rewarding enough to keep going and keep going. Yeah. And that's basically led uh, me to to today. Yeah, that's awesome. So talk to me. First off, I didn't know you played volleyball. That's very cool. Mm. Did that preparing for volleyball, did that get you into like physical preparation as a whole? Or was it just that innate love of movement early on? Yes and no. Like I was afraid of the weight room in high school. Like I didn't join the football team despite being asked to be the kicker because they lifted weights. Oh, wow. I didn't join the basketball team because the tryout involved a three-mile run. I was like, I'm not doing that. And so I joined the volleyball team because everybody made the team from tryouts. There was no weight training. There was no expectations. Like it was, I mean, honestly, it's somewhat of every kid's dream of you just go and play. Yeah. And that took me to college and briefly overseas. But the pain of losing in college forced me to figure out how do I get better. And I didn't know what to do in the weight room. And I, like so many other people, I don't want to look like an idiot. Right. So like freshman year, I just rotated on machines. That's all I did. And then I did, I went on T Nation. I had a subscription to Men's Fitness. I got a job at GNC and I just got my feet wet a little bit. And then I became the unofficial strength coach at one point for the team because we didn't have, we weren't funded well enough to have one. So the coach was right. like, everybody has to work out with Austin twice a week. <laughs> That's awesome. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like bodybuilding type stuff, yeah. basically. And again, I laugh at myself because it's like, how did, how was I so confused at my career at this exact same time? Cause yeah. I was enjoying it. I helped, I enjoyed helping my teammates, like just try to get better in the gym. Yeah. Okay. So last but not least, I love getting the career path. So you finish, sounds like PT school. You get this first pro athlete. Talk to me. Like, oh, no, I the didn't g- go to PT school. Oh, no, you didn't. Okay. So no. you were just an aide in this clinic. I was just an aide. Oh, wow. I saw, okay. I saw how the sausage was getting made in physical therapy. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. That, that is not for me. Yeah, um, me too. That's why I didn't go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I still have a big passion for injury pre- prevention more than sure. rehab. There sure. are plenty of people in certain stages of rehab that I'm like, go go see my coworkers. I don't want, yeah. I don't want that. Um, yep. Nor am I qualified. But injury prevention and late stage rehab is that is my wheel. Okay. I like that. Me too. Me too. Let's riff on that, man. Because one of the things that, you know, just to give everybody listening some context, a lot of times I will ask the guest, hey, are there certain things you want to talk about? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I want to talk about this one thing or these two things. And Austin gave me quite the laundry list of potential avenues. So instead of just like deep diving into one, we're going to be broad and wide and touch on a whole bunch of different things. And one of the things that you mentioned, I know it's in your bio and you mentioned along the way was this this idea of really honing in and trying to address non-contact injuries. So let's just start right there. Why is that such a big deal for you? Because it prevents disaster, like (laughs) prevents surgeries, prevents careers being cut short, prevents people being cut from teams. And -hmm. depending on where you are, that means like I was cut from a high school soccer team that sent me to volleyball. Like, I'm stoked with that. There are other people who get cut from teams, and that means they lose multiple millions of dollars or the avenue for providing for their families. Um, And it's such a preventable thing. I'm, like, so convinced. Can I tell you a story? I'd love a story. So here's – I just like teaching through story, and this happened last week, two weeks ago. There's one of my athletes. She plays in the top Brazilian volleyball league in Brazil. Yeah. And her shoulder was bothering her. She still played. She hasn't missed any games, but it's at that point where it's like, it's uncomfortable. And she's asking me to do something. And this is really where I think a lot of opportunity lies because I hope they're, her staff isn't listening um, <laughs> out in Brazil, but I don't mean to throw them under the bus. They're doing the best they can with what they know. Yeah. They told her like, Hey, maybe you should just rest or, 
hey, go foam roll some extra today and tomorrow or massage or heat, ice, stim, or more like traditional internal, external rubber yeah. band routines for one's rotator cuff, like the, yep. the standard thing. Yep. And she knows enough of what that does for her body and she knows what I can do. And she's, yeah, I'm not going to do that. In fact, last <laughs> year she, she got a massage for and the masseuse was like, oh, we've really got to get out this trigger point. This is this is just causing all your problems. Afterwards, she calls me and she's like, I can't lift my arm over my head. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Made it worse. So fast forward to recently, she's pointing basically to where her the long head of her bicep inserts onto her shoulder. And she's, it hurts here. And it's uncomfortable when I go overhead. And for me, the most logical thing is let's start directly at the site of pain or where the the shoulder hurts rather than the cliche idea of don't chase pain. Let's look elsewhere. Right. There's so many um, different movement options or muscles between, let's say, her thoracic spine or her core and her shoulders that it's less logical. And so my first experiment was to give her a tendon loading program for her bicep and work on her tricep in a certain form of a push-up to try to pull the head of the humerus backward into the socket a little bit more, Yeah. to put it more simply. And I have a rule with what I do in that everything, I give everything a two-week experiment, and that if it doesn't get significantly better, and we know that we're on the right track within two weeks, we do something different. And I'm so grateful that she has the gumption to tell me, like, that didn't work. Yeah. Give me something else. (laughs) When so few athletes will stand up for themselves that way. Yeah. So next I work on, I'm thinking what's, what's the next most probable thing. Let's look at her shoulder blade and her collarbone is flat instead of say 15 degrees or so. Yeah. And in my understanding of how the shoulder should move, the shoulder needs to elevate when it goes into extension. That, that is when the shoulder blade should go into anterior tilt and mm-hmm. elevation. Sure. And so because she plays so much, I think that's for depressing her scapula too much, resulting in that flat collarbone. So I give her a lot of shoulder extension exercises, and that's in the right direction. It feels better, but still bothersome. And she tells me, basically, I want you to come up with something else. <laughs> and I go to the next most logical thing, but further away, which would be her thoracic spine. And why I was hesitant to go there is because there's so many different joints that could be responsible for causing something with her shoulder, different muscles, all these different options that could make it a little bit more complex of a solution. But since we rolled, ruled out the most logical things that are shoulder and shoulder blade, this was the next most logical thing. And it's something that was on my radar. She cannot extend her thoracic spine worth a damn. And so it's something we've been working on. And when I was confronted with this, like her thoracic spine is not learned. She has not learned how to extend her thoracic spine since creating her new program in October. I've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out a new and creative way to get her to extend her thoracic spine. And long story short, I basically make her roll over. She's on her stomach, reaching back, grabbing her heels. So she's in kind of this like flying squirrel position. I call it flying squirrel rolling. And I ask her to roll over. And one of the only ways someone can roll over with control, meaning not using momentum or jerking themselves around, is by getting thoracic extension and rotation. So she's on her stomach, rotating onto her left side. She has to extend her thoracic spine and rotate to the right. And by going after this, I then have a retest and her shoulder starts feeling better despite her apprehension. And so I run with this and I go from prone to kneeling where she's basically just leaning back and extending her thoracic spine and twisting and then ask her to carry this over to the volleyball court. So how she warms up, how she hits the ball, how she throws the ball. I wanted it to be different and feel different, like novel and weird so that she has this new movement pattern. And she texts me after the game and is like, that's what my shoulder is supposed to feel like. Mm. Pain is gone. Yeah. Completely. And this is a matter of, granted, it took me a few weeks to get here. Once we found the solution, it's only a matter of hours before her pain was away. 
Now, she's not, she still has some work to do. She doesn't have the physiological adaptations for this to be completely unconscious, but it's been enough weeks where I'm like, this is the direction where we're going. She's no longer asking me to go to the, to create something new for her. And this is what I believe is possible in preventing injuries. She can still play. She can still feel good. She can maybe still enjoy her sport because her shoulders operating how she wants it to. And meanwhile, I get so frustrated and heated because it's why are we banging our heads against the wall thinking that it's a good solution when we do these traditional things that like just aren't that effective. Maybe they are for the general population. Right. But they are not for athletes. If you're enjoying today's podcast and not already subscribed to the Robertson Training Systems newsletter, what are you waiting for? When you sign up, you'll get immediate access to materials that will help you write better programs, motivate people outside of the gym, and improve how your clients move and feel. Plus, the RTS newsletter is the only place where I announce up-and-coming events like virtual summits, live seminars, and my program design mentorship. And last but not least, I hate spam as much as you do, so I will only email you when I've got something valuable to deliver, something that will make you a better athlete, trainer, or coach. So if you're not already subscribed, head over to robertsontrainingsystems.com and register for our newsletter right now, today. Now, that's enough for me. Let's get back into this week's episode. It, it's really interesting because I think so often we want to look really smart. It's, oh, it's this shoulder pain. And we've all heard the story, right? Oh, the shoulder pain was connected to the person's big toe and their big toe wasn't mobilized like we're looking at like the furthest piece away from the kinetic chain and not to downplay that, right? Maybe there is a time and a place, but sometimes, hey, look, this area where it hurts, if we just like work on that a little bit, problem solved. Was it Occam's razor, right? Just, hey, the simplest solution compared to the most like complex one. And a lot of cases, the simplest answer wins. Totally. And again, if we believe people can feel better drastically quickly and we can gather good information about our experiments, then we can spend time on this really simplistic stuff of maybe the pain is exactly where the solution lies. Mm -hmm. We don't need to search elsewhere. And we yeah. don't need to even spend that much time to determine if this is useful or not. Yeah. I just think of it like this too. And this is a reframe that I use a lot of times with athletes and clients as well, is this idea that, hey, look, like that pain, that's telling us something that's meaningful. So instead of like shying away from it, not that we want them to feel that, but like, hey, if we can address that very quickly and create, like you said, some sort of response, it's like, hey, oh, that's less painful. Okay, now we're on the right track. And so again, Absolutely. switching, they're just trying to work around it and manage it. No, like this is telling us something. What can we do to actually address this and fix this issue? And maybe we unlock your performance in the meantime. Can I guess, and you, hopefully. Of, of course. Not a, yeah, It's not like, going to bother me. <laughs> we can change sensations with manual modalities. You can change sure. how a muscle feels with massage, foam rolling, heat, stem, ice, the traditional things. But okay, in case of emergency, yeah, let's just rub some Tiger Balm on it so you can get through <laughs> the game. Trust me, I, I know the cocktail of drugs that many NFL players are taking just to make it through Sunday. Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, like the things that clearly eat away at me is like, how do we make this adaptation permanent? Like we can't rely on a foam roller every day of the year. Yeah. The body is adaptable. Let's just find the right stimulus to change it. I love it. Okay. So connecting some dots here. I know something else you're really passionate about is training kids, right? And how we should be developing our children. I think you and I are going to have a lot of similar thoughts here, but two-parter, what got you excited about this? And let's just start with some issues. What are we doing wrong here? Sorry, Steve the cat is trying to make an appearance. Oh, good. This is such an open-ended question. I'm not even sure where to start. I'll start with what are we doing wrong or doing their best. And I'm not a parent yet, but I know it's hard. They're working to provide a great life for their kids and themselves. And those who can afford it want to buy the best practice and the best coaches that they can. And so they pay a club, they drop off little Billy at soccer practice, and they see them doing drills with a soccer ball on a field with goals nearby. And they believe, they've been led to believe that that helps Billy become a better soccer player. And maybe it does at an 18 and under level because just 
if you just kick a soccer ball enough times, like the, the closed chain skills of kids will be better. But like, we know the people who specialize early do not, they're not elite athletes later. But what's worse is if we don't even care about performance, we just care about health. Like it's not fun. I don't know one person that enjoys kicking a soccer ball in a straight line back and forth to the same person for 15 minutes. <laughs> but they, they do yeah. it because it's, they're told this is how you get to be a better soccer player. And there's a trophy right. and an orange slices. And we do these mundane drills and it's all kind of this illusion. We've been led to believe that the work ethic is what leads to getting better. But these practices, like there's plenty of research and textbooks written terribly, but that state, like we know this is not useful for skill development on any stage on any yeah. stage. But when it comes to kids, like they need more diverse movement. They need to be able to navigate a swarm of kids that is bumblebee soccer. They need to be able to predict the path of a ball on the ground and in the air to then intercept it later. They need to be able to predict somebody else's movement so they don't get tackled or tripped or fall over. They need to change their center of mass. Like I was on a run this morning and I saw kids and I'm like, oh, there's no chance you have ever bent your legs into the deep squat. <laughs> yeah. Ever. Or electric bikes and electric motorized things for kids. Like what kid needs a $15,000 electric bike when they've got muscles and a heart <laughs> and love that work and they have the abundance of energy to yeah. get themselves around the town. And so it's just like these good intentions have gone way too far and it's slow cooked over such a long time that we haven't noticed it. And if you contrast that to the pandemic where it goes from like everything's hunky dory to disaster overnight, we have the entire world coming together to try to find a solution. But I would argue that what is happening to kids has been a 50 year disaster in the making. And it's just been like, oh, it's just normal. Yeah, it's normal to see a 200-pound seven-year-old. It's it's normal that yeah. like these these kids can't run, jump, or know their left foot from their right foot. And there needs to be a, a drastic change. And I talk about this with some of my colleagues, and it's sad, but I it's really sad. But I think it's the mental health side is going to get so bad with kids mm, that might agreed. be the only only thing that truly changes how we invest into kids' movement. Yeah, man. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think just starting with this idea of a lack of movement diversity, right? Okay. We're talking about, let's just say soccer or a club sport, but I mean, grassroots level, they are moving less at home, right? They're moving less at school, less recess. If they're doing a gym or a health class, a lot of times half of it or more is classroom based, right? They're not doing stuff in there. You lose this broad base. I hate one thing I hate about this discussion, though, is I always feel like we're just preaching, right? It's just, oh, back in the day when I was a kid, but there's a lot to this, right? Because we had this massive movement base and we played all these different sports. And then when it was time to specialize, in your case, volleyball, I mean, I played basketball and volleyball. When it's time to specialize, okay, you have 16 years of general physical development, right? Or 14 to 16. A lot of times now, I mean, I coached my daughter from kindergarten through fifth grade, sixth grade. She finally went into a travel program, but I had girls that I coached in kindergarten and first grade in the next year, they were in travel and they've been in travel ever since. It's the only sport they played. Mm. So this lack of movement diversity, right? So much emphasis on one sport, the monotony of playing the same sport year round, the overuse, right? You talked about your non-contact injuries, there's just so much to unpack there. It's like overwhelming sometimes to think about like, where do we even start with this? So a few things like not all movement needs to be organized sport. Yes. Like agreed. There's snow on the ground here and I still see kids walking to school in shorts. And I'm just like, I almost stopped my morning routine to run out and give the parents a <laughs> high five. And be like, you're yeah. walking your kids to school. Like, yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Next. And this is one of the main research articles that made me feel duty bound to write the book that I have coming out this year. There's the research article that basically shows that major tendon development stops at 17. The plasticity of connective tissue 
stops at 17. Yeah. Paired, it still adapts. We know that it still adapts afterwards. Sure. It's not nearly as adaptable. And 17 is just an invented arbitrary number. Biology has no idea what 17 is. It understands the chemistry of when puberty ends. Sure. And you have, you have kids that finish puberty at 13, 12, and then they've only had 12 years to develop a robust Achilles tendon. Yeah. And if they're only playing organized sports or only getting PE at school or half of it, like I watched one of the high school PE classes in California when I was still living there and like half of it was sitting on the ground doing static stretching. And I'm like, yeah, the heart rate, their heart rate is plummeting. (laughs) Get them up and moving. Yeah. And so it just has me think then like the the, somewhat the complexity of some of adults, non-contact injuries is not necessarily due to the programming or, what's happening locally within that season, but what happened 10 years ago or what didn't happen rather. Yes. Yeah. That's really important because it only takes one of those injuries on your watch or to one of your athletes for you to realize, wow, this is, this is like you alluded to, this is traumatizing, potentially career threatening or career ending. I mean, it's the last thing you want to see or deal with. And I guess I never thought of it like that. You always, I think most good coaches would always take it as a moment of self-reflection. Like, what can I do better next time? Go back and look at the old programs. What could I have done better? How can I improve? Go back and you do your due diligence and like really research the topic too. Okay, I'm going to learn everything I can about ACLs or Achilles. But yeah, I guess I never thought of it like that. Hey man, what if this happened or or this cascade of events started 10 years before? That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we talked childhood. You work a lot with professional athletes. That's a big dichotomy right? Two totally different ends of the spectrum. Talk to me about what it's like working with professional athletes and maybe what you see your role as being with them. Because a lot of them, look, let's be honest, a lot of them already have a lot of the physical traits necessary to play their given sport. So what's your role Mm -hmm. in their process? Which question would you like me to answer first? What's it like to work with them or my role with them? You can start with what's it like to work with them, and then let's go into what's your role in the process. They're normal people. I like yeah. working with them because their problems are more interesting. Yeah. They're a little bit more mentally challenging. In general population, it's usually, this is going to maybe come across either very confident or very arrogant, but <laughs> like I can usually solve the problem a lot quicker. Yeah. And I want something that's going to challenge me because I want to grow. And Um, I feel like testing my skills at the highest level of sport is the way to do that. And they're just normal people. Like they do one thing exceptionally well, but like they're normal people. Like they don't need to be on a pedestal. And most of them appreciate not being on pedestal. My role with them first is to build a great relationship. Like I, I want to be in a corner. Like a few weeks ago, one of the athletes called me, uh, crying and I was glad I picked up like on the first ring and we just talked it out. The other is like the story I told earlier with the American volleyball player playing in Brazil. She trusts me with her body and her career mm-hmm. and it's not a responsibility I take lightly. She knows and trusts that like if something is not going quite right, that I can intervene before shit hits the fan. And I, to the few athletes that I've worked with, that I could have figured out on the shit end of hitting the fan. Oh, it eats at me. Guardian, guardian of athletic potential might be a nice way to to summarize it. Yeah. So I think of it like this, because I've run the spectrum over my career and I still have some younger kids like coaching my daughter and her soccer team and friends. Now I got a couple high school kids and then I've got the savvy vets that have been in the game for a while. And I think of it like this, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this too. Like with the young athletes, there's very much this just teaching them how to train and and maybe not even train, but how to take care of their bodies. It's probably the best way to put it. And that's one of the things I always sell to parents on the back end. But for me, it's as much the front end. It's, Hey, look, we're going to help Johnny get bigger, faster, stronger, fill in the blank, right? Whatever physical output they're chasing, but we're also going to teach them how to take care of their body because 
whenever they're done playing whatever sport, they need to be able to take care of themselves the rest of their life. So that's how I think of it up front. On the back end, they're not, they are, they trust me, right? But I'm responsible for their off-season training. And in a lot of cases, they have to go to a team or they have to work with somebody else for six months, eight months, 10 months out of the year. So <clears throat> now it's teaching them how to take care of their body individually, but also like critical thinking, problem solving. Okay, if you don't have access to this, can you use instead, right? Making them an advocate for themselves. So what's your thought process there? When you're working with an elite athlete, you got them there. It's one thing to have them in your doors and you see them every day and you train them. When they go off, how do you give them the skills necessary to be successful on their own? Depends on the situation that they're in. Yeah. If they have more freedom. I mean, it depends on the sport. Like a lot of baseball players get much more freedom than NFL players. And that's just the culture within the sport. Yep. And so I, I tell them to dance the dance, to play the game. Don't make any enemies. <laughs> Your job is as much political as it is performance. Yeah. And, but like at the end of the day, your team's not looking out for you. Yeah. Like that, they, that's absolutely they, fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. You're the ecosystem there. It's I'll focus on you as much as it, it will keep my job. Yeah. And I get it. Like, I get it. And so, it depends. There are some athletes. I got a college athlete out here. She's very good. And I had the conversation of what do you, who's in control of your career? You or your staff of this college that you're going to leave behind? And you admittedly is not serving you to the best of your ability. Like you got to make some hard decisions. Yep. You're going to have some hard conversations and I can't tell you exactly how to do that, but I can tell you this is pro this what based on what we're seeing together, this is the reward at the other end of, of that right. path. Right. And try to dance a dance with them. And it's a little bit of give and take and be very weary with their egos, trying not to squash them or offend them. Yeah. But still at the end of the day, like, it's your body. It's your career. Yeah. Make choices yeah. that are for you. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important message and can be hard. Some people are naturally better with conflict than others, right? Some people you have to educate them like, hey, look, these are how you navigate these situations or how you navigate these discussions. Because some people... Again, they don't want to offend. They don't want to step on toes and rightfully. Because in some cases, right, let's say you're at a university, you could potentially work with this person for the next four or five years. So you have to have that kind of mindset going in. But one thing I'm really interested in, because I have a lot of team sports people on this show. And just for to put this out there, I don't think all team sports people, I, I don't want it to come across as I think all team sports people are bad because that's not absolutely not the case right? Like anything else, there's great team sports coaches, there's bad ones. In the private sector, there's great coaches, there's bad ones, there's the spectrum, right? So a lot of it is contextual and depends on the situation. But I don't get as many people like you on who are in a similar situation as myself, right? Where we have a private facility, we have professional athletes, and they go and work with another team or another staff. So I'm interested, how much interaction do you get with the S&C staffs of your athletes, do you get much interaction with them? Do they reach out to you and say, hey, Austin, what are you doing with Barry or Suzanne in their off season? Do you get that kind of interaction or is it just like a hands off? Okay, thanks for taking care of them. My answer will be somewhat, be a state of the union address on American <laughs> sports. I love it. I've been doing this for 12 years. I've never been contacted once by an American staff member. Of my Are you serious? Never. Never. Wow. That's really bad. That's really bad. I'd say I'm batting about 60%. Sorry. One. I just remembered. One. Okay. Um, granted, it was a, I think it was a, he was a batting coach. Not SNC. Okay. Not physical therapy. A batting coach. Yeah. It was just curious. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I'm just going to give a quick shout out to the Memphis Grizzlies 
because I've worked with them, interacted with them. It's seamless, right? Hey, what's our guy doing? Perfect. Okay. Now I know what he's doing in season. We go right into his off season training. All right. He's going back. Here's what we've been doing. All right. Boom. We know what we're doing. Like, that's how I feel like it should be, right? I've done that with the Grizzlies. I've done that with the Nets. I mean, that's out there. That's public knowledge. So that's not anything to be hidden. But man, I'm just, I'm appalled by that. I'm appalled by that. That's such a disservice to the athlete. It is. It's also, I'd like to think that I have some value to offer. It's more of a disservice to the staff. If I was in their position, I would be inviting everybody. Like, I would have a, from my understanding, and this is words I'm, plucking from what I've heard is one of my athletes goes back to their team and they're like, Oh, can I, how much can I cuss on this show? As much as you need to <laughs> look, I've had Luca on yeah. nobody cusses more than Luca and Don Saladino. He cusses uh, a lot too. You're good. So man. like they go back to their team and they're like, yeah, my guy back in California, now Colorado, he says I need to be doing these things, so I'm doing it. it makes me feel good. And then this is massive eye roll, and it's everybody's got their guy. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the team that you're playing for. I don't care what frou-frou stuff you're doing out in California. This is what you're paid to do. It's that attitude. Wow. Uh, and instead of uh, – it's defensive. Yep. I'm not, I'm trying not to, I really don't want to attack anybody. I, yeah. I understand like jobs in pro sports are hard to come by. Job security. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Scary. Yeah. But I would just want to be much more inclusive and curious. Oh, this guy's coming in with some stuff that I've never seen before and he's getting results and he's been healthy for eight years. Yeah, absolutely. I sh- what's he doing? Why is this different and why is this working for him? Yeah. And if we were just as a whole industry, if we were just a little bit more curious, like we would learn so much more. Yep. No, I couldn't agree more, man. And I'm just thinking about, I I think it's probably the 80-20 rule, right? There's the 20% that really want to see, hey man, what's on the other side of this? Like I do things my way, but I want to learn what other people are doing. And gave a couple NBA teams some shout outs because again, they reached out to me. They want to collaborate. They want to work together because that's how the athlete is best served, right? I'm reminded of Buddy Morris. <laughs> Buddy sent a guy to me. Literally, the guy was coming for three days. He's, hey, this guy knows. It's a football player, right? He's, this guy knows his way around the weight room. You don't have to do too much. Buddy talked to me for an hour to get me set up for three days of training with this guy. And the guy knew exactly what he was doing. Like, he would go in. He had his warm-up. Like, it was the tightest, most efficient thing I'd ever seen. But just like respect to those kinds of guys and gals that are willing to go out of their way and hey, let's collaborate on this. Let's make sure that we get the athlete the best possible result. And I mean, I just wish there was more of that. And I hope that as our industry evolves, the ego will get stripped away. I think part of that is age too. Like you said, if you're 27 or 28, Nothing against that. I was there at one point as well, (laughs) a long time ago. But when you're young and maybe you're in a high profile situation, maybe there is more of an ego bravado thing. No, I earned this spot. This is my job. These are my athletes. I think as you get older, there's hopefully uh, a softening of that. And hey, look, it's not about me. It's not my show. It's not my team. It's I'm here to support these people. And I think if you have that mindset shift, that can be really valuable. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like I... I don't know how I would behave if my job security was in the hands of somebody else. Yeah. That's why we work for ourselves. <laughs> we, we choose how much stress we want to take on in our own lives. And sometimes I think about, oh, I would probably work far fewer hours if I worked for somebody else. Yeah. <clears throat> but I'd much rather, I like what I do. I like the hours that I work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about something else. One of the things you talked about was health. And sometimes there's this opposite ends of the spectrum, right? There's performance and there's health and they don't overlap. I would love to hear just your thoughts on that general mindset and what we can do. This is a big one, but what can we do just as a culture to improve our health? Because it's not great. Let's be honest. Like you said. Yeah. I mean, I want to first admit that I am not the expert on this. I refer to my doctor or my nutritionist for these things. 
my show my chauffeur knowledge is what I will, I will okay. uh, allude to here, and that's like we seem to be caught up on the bright shiny things, the new technologies, and like the paraguns and the foam rolling and and what sauna and ice bath or whatever biohacking is popular today. Yes. And, okay, great, but like. How well do your cells function? How much sleep are you getting? What's have you, have you gotten blood work recently? Like, what's really going on inside of you? Yeah. Because whatever modalities or fads you're buying into are only going to be as effective as the function of, of the cell and your mitochondria sure. and whatnot. And sure. so, like, a lab test is not that expensive. You can do inside tracker and just get spend three hundred dollars get a basic amount of knowledge and like maybe your iron is extremely low and you're an endurance athlete and you start supplementing that. And like, instead of just slaving away on the miles week <laughs> after week, yeah, you, you take some iron and all of a sudden you start feeling superhuman Yeah, <clears throat> or vitamin D. Yeah. Maybe the stress fracture was less about the volume and more of the fact that you haven't seen the sun in months. Yeah. For whatever reason, I, I think there can be a lot said with just like some basic health knowledge, more on the health side, not illness medicine side. Um, yes. If you can find a doctor who is biased that way, but then like sleep, nutrition, your relationships. So like another thing that I wish was talked about more is two of my favorite studies. And so I think some of the most important studies in human nature is like what lets people live the longest and what lets people live or live the happiest lives. And the common denominator is relationships. Mm. And then on like the intimate side, the partnership side, the Gottman Institute has done some research saying that if the part one partner shows contempt for another, the receiving person is like 16 times more likely to develop a disease. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> and so relationships, like no one's playing sports without them. And I think it's a big lever to pull on for health mm. um, performance as well. Like I've never met an athlete who got the most out of themselves for a coach that they hated. Very fair. Very fair. It's interesting because you talk about like the biohacking and do this and whatever is trendy and hot right now. It's like training, right? Nobody wants to hear that you should use progressive overload, right? take maybe some deload weeks, learn the foundational movements. They want to learn like the newest, sexiest exercise, right? And just put that every week times 52 weeks and you have zero progress, right? Same thing with all the biohacking, right? Nobody wants to hear, oh yeah, you should eat like a well-rounded, nutritious diet, make primarily of whole foods, get enough protein, hydrate, get enough fiber, sleep seven and a half to nine hours a night, go outside, actually see the sun, you know, move your body regularly. Yeah. Like those things aren't exciting. So it's so hard to sell them, yeah. <laughs> but it's what people know, need. But th that's the thing is like people need to be sold on it a little bit more. They need to understand like, oh wait, if I like just took some vitamin D, you mean I wouldn't deal with stress fractures all the time in a hypothetical scenario or wait a second, like fiber is important. <laughs> wait, is, does pizza have fiber? What about, what about cereal? Well, yeah, I know. maybe it depends on the cereal, but, and then what the health effects of that are and, and how that can affect performance. And I think, and this isn't my job, thankfully, but I can start pushing it, my athletes toward people who can then their job is to sell yeah. like, the effects of what that feels like or what like sleeping well, you know, 90% of nights will yeah. do for your performance and yeah. just your mood. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that comes into, to being in our space. If you're in a team environment, now, especially if you're at a high level team, they've got everybody in house, right? For guys like us, there's an element of, okay, hey, I can't do all the things, right? Or at least I can't do all the things at a high level. So I'm going to do the training, but I need a nutrition person. Maybe I need a sleep or recovery expert, somebody that I'm teamed up with, a PT. Like there's a lot of value in widening your professional network and being able to call those people in and, and use their resources when necessary to really tighten the screws and help your athletes, or just, I would describe, I talked about people as high performers because I got some gen pop people who I wouldn't describe mm. as gen pop. They're not just like trying to shed 20 pounds. They're yeah. like trying to really crank things up. So like 
when you have those high performers and you have all these amazing resources, makes it that much easier to really get them the results they want. Absolutely. Like the, the information's there, it's available. Yeah. Like the internet is an amazing tool. You have to you have to find it. I like finding a needle in a haystack sometimes, but it's there. Yeah. Okay, so I Some got of it is low cost. Yeah, agreed. All right, I got one more topic I want to touch on because this has been fun, but I really want to hear your thoughts on language. And <laughs> what you wrote was really funny. It's like the people who study how humans learn skills in impossible English. And <laughs> that really made me laugh because yeah, it's, we're talking about how to like better talk and communicate and interact with people, yet the writing that this person, it's awful, right? It's almost indecipherable. It's not how any normal human would talk. So talk to me about just the power of language and how we can go about improving our language with our clients and with our athletes. I mean, getting clearer with words, written, spoken, mastering language allows so many different opportunities. There's research showing that the more happy words, the happier you are. Mm. The more sad words, yeah. the more unhappy you will be. Yep. Journaling about your life goals or traumatic events both lead to healthier outcomes just by using words. Labeling emotions at the very basic level is really good for you. And then when we're talking about communicating ideas to another person. Part of the thing that really frustrates me is these people write these textbooks. What's one of the titles I have right here? I'm sorry, can't You're find good. it. But nonlinear pedagogy and skill acquisition. That sounds like a real barn burner. Can't wait this to dive into for, that. This is a book I assume is for coaches. Yeah. I don't know many people who understand and can explain to me what nonlinear pedagogy is, even yeah. people in the industry. Yeah. And when a writer is communicating to other researchers, use all the jargon you want. Sure. It's great. The other person understands it. Yeah. But we're not talking about quantum physics here. Yep. We don't need the jargon. We're talking about jukes jumps, sidelines, side kicks, tackles, throws, at-bats, pitches. We have the words already available, and they're more simple with fewer syllables, and they get the point across. But it comes back to a little bit, I think, of what you were talking about earlier, where people are insecure, and they want to sound smart. Yes. So they use yeah. big words, and then people receiving those words don't want to seem stupid. And so then they don't ask questions. And I was in the same boat many years ago when I started reading this stuff. And I was reading these things with big words. And I'm like, God, I am a big old dumb. <laughs> yeah. I don't. What is an, afford, an affordance? Strength led approach. What approach to what? And then you have a paragraph here, but it's one sentence. And every word has four syllables. <laughs> and I assumed. Wow, I must have no clue how people learn skills. And then I started talking to some of the people who knew this stuff and were using it in practices. And I watched the practices and they weren't that special. Yeah. What they, the, the special part is that they weren't the soccer drills that I talked about 30 minutes ago, yeah. like kicking a ball back and forth. It's like, yeah. oh, they're playing games. It's less predictable. Oh, they use a sideline on the right side of a person to force them to go left. Huh. Why don't they write it that way? And I, and I still don't really know. <laughs> but like across the world, from all the athletes that I've talked to, every single one has their practice pretty much structured with like boring, irrelevant stuff for the first like half of practice to two thirds of practice. And then the fun competitive stuff in the end. Yeah. And Based on what I understand about these big worded textbooks, like a lot of that initial stuff is pretty useless. Yeah. Like there was a video in the NFL, of like a ball security drill where they ran in place and then fell to the ground. That is that, that is this like dire problem. We have this dire problem of how sports are practiced and we have 
this amazing information that tells us how humans learn skills best. And it's basically through some form of play. Let yep. Just let me just generalize it there. Yep. Like make it, make it unpredictable and make it playful and people will get better. As we have this huge opportunity and words speaking clearly, writing clearly is the bridge to gap these two. Yeah. And that is why like in the book that I have coming out, like the last half of the book is completely dedicated to writing that bridge so that coaches can make more effective practices for their athletes. Like athletes will get better. They'll have more fun. And like, where, where's the downside? We, yeah. we, you mean we use less jargon, less nomenclature. Do I need that to feel good about myself? That's a big no. one right there. That's a big one right there. So I got a couple notes I jotted down here. Number one, this reminds me of Rhett Larson. I don't know if you know who Rhett is. He was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but his whole thing is like no zombie warmups. So instead of doing the same pre-can warmup every time, like everything is dynamic, engaging, it bakes in all these things that we'll carry over to as volleyball players, but it's so impactful and it gets them so switched on early in the session. Like immediately, instead of this kind of ascent into practice, they're like here right off the bat and they're ready to go. So the mm -hmm. practices end up being so much more effective. But one of the things you talked about, and I think this is really important because this is something I struggled with when I was younger and somebody very smart or somebody I thought was very smart would talk to me like you alluded to. They might be using total jargon for whatever reason. Maybe that's just the way they think because some people do just think in jargon and high level medical textbook talk. Other people want to seem really smart. And so I had this same issue of, well, I don't want to seem dumb, so I'll just nod. Okay, yeah, great. And you don't really learn anything and you move on, right? So one of the things that I've started to do as I got older with people that I think are going to give me an answer like that is I will say, explain it to me like I'm five. And I stole that from one of our old coaches, Jay Chung, because, for example, Bill, who I work with, Bill Hartman, brilliant. His brain thinks totally differently than mine. In a lot of cases, we end up in kind of the same ballpark. But the way he thinks, the way he explains things are totally different. So that's the way I have him try and explain stuff to me. Hey, don't talk the way you think. Talk to me like I'm five. How would you explain this to a five-year-old? And ultimately, in a lot of cases, I find it helps strip some of that away. And ultimately, the person that's talking gets better at explaining or describing their thought, concept, idea, whatever. And on my end, hopefully, I actually take something away from it and I learn something new and that I'm able to apply later on. That's fantastic. Like the biggest, the most important thing is that you were brave enough to ask that question. Yeah. It, it um, took a while. <laughs> I'm 45. Yeah. It took me a while, but it, because at some point it's not about looking smart anymore. Right? Like I don't, it's, I don't care about putting my stamp on this athlete's program. Right? I want the best thing for the athlete. In this case, I don't care if you think I'm smart or not, whatever. I just want to understand what you're doing so that I can then either take it and apply it, refute it, whatever. But if I don't really know what you're saying, then I don't really get anything out of that interaction. Exactly. It's a waste of time. Yeah. Everybody's space, time. Oxygen. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Big question time. And I ask everybody this, so I'm interested to hear your answer. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Austin Einhorn one piece of advice, what would it be? Your hardships serve you. Keep going. I like that. Is there one in particular or just all of them? I'd say all of them. Yeah. They make you who you are, right? That's another lesson. I think sometimes takes you a while. When you're young, you don't want to deal with pain, suffering, that sort of thing. You still don't when you get older, but I think you see the value that they provide. Yeah. So if you want big questions, you ask big questions, you're going to get bigger answers. My mom died when I was 15, and this, I had some help along the way, I will admit, but I was on my own after 18. Yeah. And that was some of the hardest times of my life. Yeah, I But bet. Uh, looking back, I'm very grateful. Yeah. Uh, and I would have appreciated like a little bit of certainty in a very uncertain time of being like, You'll be okay. Yeah, I like it. Okay, last but not least, lightning round. Four fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. 
Number one, talk to me about the book. First off, what's the title? It's not like the pedagogy of non-linear. No. <laughs> what's it titled? What's it the, about? Anything. The Evolved Coach. The, I like uh, that. It's called The Evolved Coach. The ex ex Extinction of Non-Contact Injury and Evolution of Performance. And it's divided into three parts. The first part is childhood development. And I use a metaphor that has worked really well called movement banking. And you make investments into your movement when you're very young, and those will pay off huge dividends when you're older. That's the first part. And those seem like those are the basic building blocks that we need to get right. Yep. Next is going to be a myth-busting chapter where I, to use an Australian term, I take the piss out of a lot of <laughs> our common fads. And I make it very playful and silly. And hopefully people can see the humor in our actions. And then I talk about the, the main methodology that I use, which is the evolved coaching stuff, where I use evolution as the backbone for how I work with uh, athletes and how I evaluate them. But words are not the best medium to teach that. So that's where I tease it a little bit, but that's where my courses really shine um, in person and online, where I can show people how people devolve their movement and how you can evolve it. And, and it's really how movement has evolved for the last um, hundreds of millions of years. And then part three is combining that where it's like, how do we incorporate movement quality into better practices with skills? Um, and in that I decipher the lexicon of skill acquisition science into normal people language and offer a few insights along the way um, so that people can leave the book, not only having enjoyed it, I think it, I wrote it very well, and it's a beautiful book as well as informative book, but understanding the complex problem that is non-contact injuries as well as in performance yeah, and feeling empowered that they can make a change in their life or their lives of the clients they're working with. When does that come out? We're hoping for April. Okay. I've had a, basically I'm at the finish line and then got a snowball to the face. <laughs> it's never good. It was just self-publishing a book is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Writing oh. the book's easy. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just so many things that are out of my control yeah. that have cropped up along the way. I thought I was going to be out in February and then snowball to the face calling an audible. We're thinking April, okay. April, May. Okay. Very cool. I'm excited. I'll definitely check it out. Number two, how's Loki? Talk to me about Loki. How long have you had him? Oh, he's seven months old as of today. Okay. He's a mostly Dutch Shepherd, Dutch Shepherd dog with a little bit of pit bull. And he is, I mean, I'm going to sound like so many parents, like he's perfect. Um, <laughs> yes, I know. I love my dog. He's great. Like he listens. He's extremely motivated to learn and please me and so obedience training we do a lot of training but it's also i learn a lot about skill acquisition for humans by working with a dog yeah okay so i don't really care for the the tricks of bang and roll over and yeah. like all these other things i want him to be a very obedient and well-behaved dog with like good manners yeah so let's take the instance of just him lying down and here mastered there's no distractions like this is the, the controlled practice where he's just learning how to lie down and yeah. then i want him to stay there but then we go into the backyard and all of a sudden there's birds and there's dogs in the neighbor's yard and all oh, of a sudden yeah. he's forgotten it <laughs> and it's this lesson that skills need to be practiced in different contexts it's not enough to just in the case of volleyball, it's not enough to just practice your serve in an empty gym and then pat yourself on the back because you're doing the work where nobody's watching. Right. Cool. That's like some self-esteem boosting, but that's not going to make you a better server. You have to do it in different contexts, not only physical contexts, but different emotional contexts. One of his best doggy friends came over yesterday and we're working on his lying down and he's so ramped up that he doesn't know I exist. <laughs> so I have to take the really high value treats, put it in front of his nose to remember, hey, come back down to reality. Like I'm only going to open the door for your friend if you lie down. Right. And he works on that skill. And it's um, just reminding me how much, like how much more complex skills are in mammals, if you will, than what we perceive to be. And then it's still not even that complex. Just try the same thing in a different way. 
right. each time or a different context, whether it's environmental or emotional or conversational. All of those are very useful reps for mastery. Yeah. Oh, that's good, man. I like that. Okay. Talk to me. Tell me the story about this 330 pound O lineman you have that is also a rock climber. Talk to me about this guy. It sounds like a savage. We met at the Super Bowl in 2017. He had a lot of problems with uh, primarily his back, some herniated discs. Came from a powerlifting background, like quintessential football culture oh, imprinted yeah. upon him. And he didn't believe a word that I said for four years. <laughs> yeah. He, but he kept coming back to you because it was working. And this inner turmoil of this guy is saying some nonsense, but like in the first year that we worked together, his back squat went from 545 pounds to 670 pounds. Oh my gosh. Not, not a novice in yeah, the weight room. No high training age for sure. Yeah. And that's a 24% PR. Oh my gosh. That's savage. And he doesn't, he still, this guy just doesn't make sense, but it's working. I want to be good at football and keep my job up. I'm going to keep seeing him. And I don't remember exactly like what pushed him over the edge to finally believing what I had to say. If it was like one moment, I'll text him and ask him later today. But he's now an amazing coach. Like when we work together every summer, I make sure to overlap some athletes to like the best way I think I can help him is I ask him to teach now. Mm. I'm encouraging him to go into coaching when he's done if he wants to and he does such a good job and the other athletes like listening to him it's I'm like oh oh." when they hear Wes talking like oh yeah Austin always says that I guess I should listen like (laughs) their parents and kids conversation and he just loves climbing and I think that his passion for climbing really helps him with football, not only from a physical preparation standpoint and like what it's done to his grip and his arm strength. Oh my the gosh. Dude yeah. gained, the dude gained 15 pounds of muscle when he started climbing regularly. That's crazy. Just that's supporting that much from, weight. I mean, yeah, that's ridiculous. On his fingertips. Yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. Like I'm 220 ish and I have a hard time doing what he's doing. I can't imagine wearing a hundred more pounds. Yeah. And so when he like, He'll eventually just pursue climbing when he is eventually done with football. Wow. Yeah. I've got a, a race car driver that loves to climb as well, but he's a buck 55. He's got the exact, I'm like, dude, if you didn't race cars, you would be ideal at this. Cause he's got the frame wiry. Yeah. yeah. A, a 300 plus pound human being climbing rocks is impressive. Okay. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Austin Einhorn, man? What are you working on? Obviously teaching. the book teaching. Talk to me about that. Like I said earlier, like working with elite athletes is challenging me, but the next challenge, the things that's exciting me more is teaching. Like how can I combine these things that I love, which is language relationship building and preventing injuries while enhancing performance. And how can I help more people do that? Yeah. And like, how can I make teaching fun? Like, I want to build deep relationships with people over a three-day course or an eight-week online mentorship where people leave feeling different than they do from any other course. That they're like, I am so much more capable now. Like, yep. my athletes are getting better faster. And some of them like asking me to be on a retainer because they think I'm so valuable now. Like, That's cool. The For the effects that I want to have on sports, I can't silo myself to just working with athletes like i enjoy teaching and it's been really effective for myself and all the students that have attended my courses and like i can move the needle a little bit and even if it's just a couple hundred a couple thousand athletes maybe that are able to keep their careers yeah are able to prevent surgeries are able to get prs like oh it's so worthwhile. It's so meaningful. And it's so fun for me to test my skills that way. It's enticing. The questions you get from coaches tend, not always, but they tend to be a lot more evolved. They understand more of the nuance. They understand just more of where you're going with things. So to be able to take something and explain it to a coach is a lot more challenging than it is to explain it to most athletes. 
So it makes you evolve your own game, right? It makes you sort and organize all your thoughts, which is a whole nother ball game. It's one thing to own it up mm-hmm. here. It's totally different to be able to like put it in this really nice format that other people can then understand and use and apply. And yeah, totally get it. And it's, I always think of it like this as amazing as it, as it is to work with athletes. And I will do that as long as I can. It's also amazing to, to unlock other people's education, unlock their minds, their curiosity, and then have them then take that and apply it with their own athletes, right? It really allows you to leverage your own knowledge base. So it's not just siloed to the group of people you coach on a regular basis. Now you've got so much more scope, so much more leverage and ability to impact other people. It's really powerful. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a puzzle for me to solve. And that's it's that's what's more fun for me. I don't really care for sports that much. What's more fun for me is just, oh, I just want to solve these problems. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, I love it, dude. Austin, for not having a script, this is pretty damn good. This is fun. Like we touched on all kinds of different topics. A lot of fun chatting with you today. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Instagram would probably be the best, and that's just at Austin Einhorn. If you are interested in the course, or um, the course that will be theevolvedcoach.com. The book will get plugged there too, I believe. But Instagram's a main outlet. Okay. If you're interested in other aspects of my writing, I write a blog with uh, basically I create two things. I create a Puros, which is the location of where I train athletes. Yep. That has the blog, but. Again, like the Instagram's the, the home base. Perfect. I'll make All sure the announcements get made there. Okay, perfect. I'll make sure I get those links in the show notes so people can find you. And again, Austin, this was amazing, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, my friends, that does it for this week's episode with Austin Einhorn. Really hope you enjoyed it. A lot of great topics and pieces of conversation there. Like I said up top, we get a little cerebral uh, a few times in there, but I think great talking points and things that we need to be talking about more as an industry, specifically just talking about training and coaching young athletes as a whole, right? It shouldn't feel like work. They are not many adults. And look, nobody likes to line up and just do lines. I'm reminded of when I was coaching soccer, one of the soccer coaches there was really good at working with young kids. And he said, no laps, no lines. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Please, let's get away from that stuff. Let's find better ways to coach our kids and to help them acquire the skills necessary to be great at their sport. So whether we're talking about coaching young athletes, whether we're talking about the language that we use as coaches, nobody cares about pedagogy or constraints-led approaches. You know, Even when I talk about constraints-led approach, I talk about the idea of modifiers, right? We're just modifying exercises to make sure we can coach and cue less to help our clients and athletes learn faster. So awesome conversation points. I hope you took something away from it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me one small favor. Wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now. And if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe to the show. iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube podcasts, wherever you consume shows, go there right now and hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.